This is Ozarks at Large for Monday, September 26, 2022. I'm Kyle Kellums. In just a moment, we'll hear from four doctors who are part of a new long COVID symptom clinic at the UAMS Northwest Arkansas campus. But before that, big thank you to you for supporting public radio that spends time exploring where you live. This week is the on-air part of our fall fundraising month, and we can't bring you stories about your community, health, economy, art, and justice included without your support. We can't do it if you don't contribute. The largest part of our budget comes directly from listeners like you. And during this year's fall on-air fundraiser, we're not offering coffee mugs, CDs, or T-shirts as thank you gifts for your support. Instead, this autumn, we're partnering with Canopy, NWA, and great friends of the station, Lynn and Joel Carver, to encourage you to support your public radio station and provide gift cards for welcoming kits for refugee families relocating in our area. So every afternoon of the fundraiser, including this one, from noon until 7, we have a challenge pledge from Lynn and Joel. They're putting up their own money to encourage you to become a new sustainer of KUAF. When we receive 10 new sustainers and we've met that challenge, our generous anonymous donor will add $100 to our fundraising total and provide a $300 gift card to Canopy NWA for furniture, kitchen items, bedding kits, toiletries, and more for refugee families. We hope to provide an opportunity for listeners to support the news, the music, the entertainment, the connection and more they get from KUAF, and at the same time, also support connection to the newest members of our community. And if you'd like to see a full list of needed items for welcome kits, you can visit CanopyNWA.org. You can make a contribution to KUAF and become a sustainer right now at SupportKUAF.com. Oh, and by the way, during this hour of Ozarks at Large, our great friends John and Kay Duval of Fayetteville have put up $150 of their own money. If we hit $150 given in any amount, renewing membership, brand new membership, sustaining membership, then John and Kay Duval of Fayetteville will match that. So $150 helps us meet the great uh, challenge from the Duvals. If you become a sustaining member, you're helping us reach that goal to give a $300 gift card to Canopy NWA. You can do your part for your community at supportkuaf.com. All right, we start our program today with the continuing challenge to understand and treat long COVID. The University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences Northwest Arkansas campus has opened a clinic for people experiencing symptoms three weeks or more after a positive test. Last week, we talked with four of the doctors involved. Chris Walter, assistant professor in the Department of Physical Therapy and co-director of the North Street Clinic, where the long COVID clinic is operated. Scott Warmack, associate dean for the College of Pharmacy. Sheena Carley, assistant professor of internal medicine. And Angel Holland, associate program director for physical therapy and associate professor, as well as associate director for interprofessional education. Scott Warmack says the concept for the clinic came from close to home. We were uh, discussing a family member of mine who had... COVID and it was, it, it just didn't seem to be getting better. And it, he kept calling me and asking me, should I, hey, should I be okay? And I'm like, this can last a while. And this was early on, probably before I even knew there was long COVID. Um, I really, or was that aware of the constellation of, you know, symptoms that people are, uh, you know, kind of describing. Uh, and so me and uh, Sheena were d- discussing it. And out of that discussion, uh, and Gina just kind of said, we need to have a, a long COVID clinic. And I was like, that's a good idea. Uh, and we were like, well, when could we do it? And we started talking, well, we have the student clinic. And 
you know, we brainstormed. It wasn't, it was like, you know, that would be good. The reason why it made sense is, uh, you know, knowing, I guess I know a little more about long COVID at that point, but it was still early on, but knowing that there was so much more involved, I mean, physical therapy, occupational therapy, uh, you know, uh, people that need to be involved in these long-term complications, where do we have, you know, a good group? And, you know, we're all educators and we thought our student run clinic has been designed to, to really focus on the Marshallese uh, and uh, taking care of them as far as, you know, diabetes primarily. Uh, that's what we've been kind of geared towards, but this was another area that this group of students and this group of interprofessional group could, um, could really be utilized. And then just the educational opportunities for the students was, was amazing. Plus we'd be filling the need doing a service for the community. That's, I don't know, that's my memory of it. Does that sound yeah. right? Yeah, I think that sums it up pretty well. You know, we, we saw the need in our own family members, friends, patients, um, and just looking at how other institutions had modeled this around the country, it was pretty focused around a medical home with lots of different disciplines interacting together. And so we looked at our campus and what we can do, and it seemed to fit naturally into our interprofessional clinic. Yeah, Gina, I want to ask, I mean, it's one thing to say, let's do this. We should do this. What does it take physically to make it happen? You have to talk to the other people involved in the interdisciplinary sciences mm -hmm. and fields. Yeah, and I think we're really fortunate that we had this set up in place already. Um, that definitely helped expedite things. It was more of a natural flow into the student clinic, but there's still barriers that we're finding as we're getting up and running and there's still challenges. Um, you know, we are limited in how many patients we can see at a time. I think that's our biggest challenge right now. And these appointments take a couple hours per patient. Um, and so we're starting to develop a little bit of a wait list, which is unfortunate, but we are working on trying to improve access to shorten that wait time. And Chris Walter and Angel Holland, I want to bring you in this conversation as well. One of the things that I think would be a big challenge is that the long COVID symptoms seemingly can be all over the place. We can be talking about, you know, loss of taste or smell or something much more dramatic. So it seems like it's almost everything a, a quote, regular clinic would do. You've got to be ready for yeah, absolutely. I, I think, but that's really where we can shine because of our interprofessional team. Um, you know, as you mentioned, long COVID is a multi-system disease. Um, and of course, our patients come in and with these very common complaints of, you know, shortness of breath and fatigue and, and weakness. Um, but I think that, so clearly we're able to um, address their medical needs but also what we don't commonly think about is that all of these symptoms actually impact the patient's ability to function, right? Or um, to interact and in, in with their environment or, you know, to do the things that they normally do. So for example, um, you know, maybe just getting a shower is challenging because of the shortness of breath and, and the weakness and the fatigue or, you know, um, uh, you know, going to the store, right, uh, or playing with their children or their grandchildren. Um, these things that that are impacted kind of by all of these symptoms that, that are due to long COVID, um, that's really where the interprofessional team shines. And we, we get 
physical therapy and occupational therapy. And we take all of that and we um, find ways to address those, um, uh, those challenges within their function and, and in order to promote their independence. I think to, to add to that as well is um, the, the amazing thing that, um, that I see, especially with this particular clinic, is we're not only meeting the needs as they happen for this, um, for this community and what we're seeing in the long COVID symptoms, but at the same time, we're providing just an amazing opportunity of education for our students. And um, we're able to provide that in a professional team because we're able to turn this into a learning opportunity for our students. And our students are getting to be on this cutting edge of medicine, this cutting edge of healthcare. Um, and they're being, um, you know, they're being um, supervised by all of these amazing staff and our preceptors that are there, but they're actually getting to, um, to participate and see this so that when they graduate and they're out there as healthcare professionals, they've already had this experience of treating patients that have these long COVID symptoms. And, um, and so it's really a win-win. So we're, we're able to provide this service for the community that is so needed for so many people, but at the same time, we're also providing this amazing learning experience for our students. And we're really preparing them um, when they're out there in their own healthcare disciplines as professionals. For patients, how does it work? I mean, I guess most patients who uh, have a symptom of long COVID, they, they're pretty sure it is because they had COVID-19. Do they call a clinic? Do they need to see their own physician first and get referred? Um, yes. Yeah, so they're welcome to call the clinic directly. Um, the only reason we would require a referral is if their insurance company needed it. Um, but otherwise we don't require a referral from another physician. They can call in. Um, our phone number is 479-713-8701. Um, they'll ask them a few questions and uh, we'll get them set up for an appointment as soon as we can. Are there different symptoms that are more common if you had, you know, the original or if you had one of the variants? Is, is there any sort of emerging information on this? Yeah, I think that's one of the hardest parts about long COVID is it's impossible to predict it. Um, we don't know who is going to get affected, how badly they're going to get affected, which uh, organ system is going to be predominantly effective. We're seeing some trends right now um, that women, um, patients who did not receive a COVID vaccine, patients who have chronic underlying medical issues, or those who were hospitalized with their acute COVID infection are more likely to have long COVID. That's kind of the extent of what we really know right now. So, you know, our patients will come in and they are basically initially evaluated by our interprofessional team of students. Um, and of course, each uh, discipline kind of has specific um, a specific approach they do. They're looking for specific things with regards to, you know, um, their past medical history or the, the medications that, the, that they're on or, um, or uh, any sort of limitation within uh, their ability to perform activities of daily living or um, are they limited in, their, uh, in what they can do with work um, or out in the community. And then that team of students basically comes together and they devise a plan uh, to treat that particular patient. And the beauty of this clinic is that we as faculty preceptors are watching the interaction at, in real time. So we can get that information too. And then as the students come to present the patient and their suggested plan of care, we can also kind of add on to that. And 
And as uh, Angel had mentioned, it, it's a great learning opportunity for our students to see how all how the individual disciplines interact and then how they actually interact with each other, right? Come together to create that plan uh, best suited for that particular patient. Chris Walter is assistant professor in the Department of Physical Therapy and co-director of the North Street Clinic, where the long COVID clinic for the University of Arkansas Medical Sciences is operated. Scott Warmack is associate dean for the College of Pharmacy. We also heard from Sheena Carl Lee, assistant professor of internal medicine, and Angel Holland, associate program director for physical therapy and associate professor and associate director of interprofessional education. Our conversation took place via Zoom last week. We'll hear an extended version of the discussion on Weekend Ozarks at Large, Sunday morning at 9 on KUAF. Sona, the Symphony of Northwest Arkansas, opens its 68th season October 29th at Walton Arts Center. Maestro Paul Haas and Sona musicians present Imagine Big, performing bold works by Jessica Meyer, Dmitry Shostakovich, and Modest Muzorgsky. Connecting the works is a spirit of ambition, imagination, and contagious energy that speaks to Sona's biggest season yet. Tickets at 443-5600 or sonamusic.org. Thank you so much for being with us on this Monday edition of Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellums. We have more Ozarks at Large in just a moment. Randy Dixon with the Prior Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History will be here for his regular Monday visit with archives. Those are archives that are made possible for the Prior Center through a gift from Barbara Tyson and the Tyson Family Foundation. KUAF and Ozarks at Large here because of gifts so many of you have made. And if you haven't made a gift yet and you use KUAF for information, I really implore you to do your part to make sure that public radio and Ozarks at Large stays strong and stays here for you. More than three-fourths of our budget comes from listeners just like you. Simple to make a pledge. Support KUAF. Com. I'm Kyle Kellums, KUAF News Director. I've been here 33, well, more than 33 years here. And the reason we have been able to continue to grow, taking Ozarks at Large to a daily show, creating all sorts of important podcasts, bringing you other stations like KUAF2 and KUAF3, the reason we've been able to do this, and most of it for no cost to you, is because listeners like you, hopefully like you, have contributed what you can afford to this public radio station. John and Kay Duval of Fayetteville are great friends of KUAF, have been for a long time. They have issued a $150 challenge during this very unique hour of Ozarks at Large. If you can make a contribution of up to $150, new, renewed, a sustaining membership, they will match that, and then that's worth $300 to us. Support KUAF.com. You can mail a contribution to 9 South School, Fayetteville, Arkansas, 72701. And during this fundraiser, we have something pretty special going on, a partnership with Canopy, NWA, and great friends of the station as well, Lynn and Joel Carver. It's to encourage you to both support KUAF and provide gift cards for welcoming kits for refugee families that are relocating here. Uh, so every afternoon, today through Friday, we do have a challenge from Lynn and Joel Carver putting up their own money to encourage you to become a new sustainer of the station. Pick a month, pick an amount, and every month you make that contribution to the station. When we receive 10 new sustainers and we've met the challenge, Lynn and Joel will add $100 to our fundraising total and then also provide a $300 gift card to Canopy NWA for furniture, kitchen items, and the other things that go into this welcoming kit. Now, you may have been a member before, but you haven't been a sustaining member. If you make that transition right now, you're helping us meet that goal. And you can do that, yes, 
at supportkuaf.com. We certainly appreciate your support. You're doing your part for your community, for your public radio station, and for the newest members of our community. And thank you. And thank you again, everyone who has contributed or will contribute at supportkuaf.com. Randy Dixon from the Prior Center here in just a moment, and then later Matthew Moore to give us highlights of what's coming up in tomorrow night's live natural election podcast reporting at the Prior Center. A lot of Prior Center on today's show. want to remind you that we have a show tomorrow at noon and 7. John Jenner from the Fort Smith Symphony will talk about a very busy weekend for the symphony that includes events both in Fort Smith and Bentonville. He'll give us the details on that. Also tomorrow on our show, legendary director, writer, actor, and thought-provoking person John Waters. He's going to be a guest in Little Rock of the Central Arkansas Library System. We talked with him by phone last week. John Jetter, John Waters, tomorrow on Ozarks at Large. I want you to know that the Office of Independent Counsel can indict my dog. They can indict my cat. But I'm not going to lie about the president. I'm not going to lie about the First Lady or anyone else. This is a Monday edition of Ozarks at Large. We're dipping into, as you could just hear, the Prior Center archives. And as always, our guide to those archives is Randy Dixon with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Happy Monday, Kyle. We've got a great subject here, a name that was a household name yes. for a certain amount of time. But if you perhaps are a newcomer to Arkansas or somewhat younger, it may be a name you're unfamiliar with. Right. His, his name is Webster Hubble also known as Webb Hubble. Uh, I covered him for years at KTV in various roles. Um, you know, you say a, a cat has nine lives. He maybe didn't have nine, but I count close to seven okay. at least. So I thought we would uh, go through uh, the journey of his life, and it's been quite a life. Um, he is still living, of yes. course, uh, because I talked to him last week. Well, before we get into the first of his seven-ish lives, yes. what did we hear just now? Well, that was from 1999 when he was uh, addressing some additional legal charges that had been uh, leveled against him uh, against... Uh, from the independent counsel of the Whitewater investigation, Kenneth Starr, who, by the way, recently right. passed away, which is what, what made me think of this. Right. And during the Whitewater era, Webb Hubble's name was in the news seemingly every day. That's right. That's right. But we're going to start long before Whitewater. Right. And he um, was... I guess you would say a household name here in Arkansas because he was an Arkansas Razorback football right. star. Um, he was he was a hog from 66 to 69, and uh, his senior year, this was what was most outstanding about his career as an athlete. Um, Arkansas beat Georgia in the – and Georgia was undefeated, beat them in the Sugar Bowl in 69. But you found... An uh, interview yeah. with Frank Broyles 
Uh, this was in 69, and it was right before the game. This was a huge game in the culmination of, of quite a season for the Razorback. Well, Bud, this is the biggest challenge that we've had in a long time. I think the prestige of this ball game will mean more to Arkansas than any game we've played in five years. And I think the squad realized this. The fans realize it. We'll be there in full force. So will the Georgia people. But Georgia is a very respected football team across the nation. And should we be able to, to play well and maybe win the football game, it'd go a long way towards helping our prestige next year and the following year. Now let's bring this together. Yeah, I found something really cool in the KTV archives. It is a 1969 interview that Bud Campbell did with Webb Hubble right after the game, and he talks about that game. And Webb, again, in the Sugar Bowl, you had problems with that knee, didn't you? Yes, sir. I had to go out one time for three plays. However, I did come back in. And what, uh, would it just grab on you and then you get to the bench and it work on a little bit and get all right again? Yes, sir. The cartilage would tear and uh, it just, I got used to it tearing and after a few plays I could come back in. Since that time, of course, you've had an operation and had some cartilage removed and a couple of days ago you got off the crutches, so it's progressing, I guess. Yes, sir. It's getting better and it's the normal operation. A lot of people have had it. And it just takes time to get well. Webb Hubble is the subject of our Prior Center Profiles this week on Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams with Randy Dixon. You talked to Webb Hubble. Yes, yes. He's uh, living in Carolina. But I called up with him and, and talked to him about his career and specifically that that Sugar Bowl game. Went from being a defensive end in high school to an offensive tackle. And then my senior year we had a really good team. It was kind of the predecessor to the big shootout team. And then played undefeated Georgia in the Sugar Bowl. It's so interesting how so much of Arkansas's history touches back to those, for better or for ill, Arkansas football was such an influence. Right, whether you played it right, or watched it, right, somehow involved with it if you were in the band. If, right. If you, you know, somehow had a, had a connection to right. the university. We, very few things, uh, you know, there were only three channels, there were two statewide newspapers, and there was Razorback football. It well, that's like, what yeah. you did on Saturday, right. is you followed, whether it was on TV or whether it was on the radio, right. you followed the hog game. Right. I mean, that was a Saturday ritual. All right, so Webb Hubble, af- he, he, he was an electrical engineering Yes, and that, he graduated with a, yeah. with a degree, and this is what's crazy. He was drafted uh, by the Chicago Bears of the NFL, and, you know, he was talking about problems he was having with his knees, kind of like major problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was enough that he wasn't able to play pro, so he could have been a pro football player. But He had a pretty good backup plan. Yeah, he did. <laughs> he did. He, he went, came back up here, mm-hmm. went to law school, I uh, got a degree and then moved to Little Rock and started working early on at the prestigious Rose Law Firm. Foreshadowing. And yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, and, you know, he, two of his colleagues were Vince Foster, mm-hmm. which will come up right. later, and Herb Rule, but they recruited the first female to ever work for the Rose Law Firm, really the first, one of the few female practicing attorneys uh, in the state. That's crazy. But this young lady, (laughs) Hillary Rodham, Mm -hmm. uh, was moving to Little Rock from Fayetteville because of her husband's new job. You know, after uh, Bill ran for Congress and didn't win, 
Then he turned around and ran for attorney general and won. And we, you know, Pence and her had known her pretty well uh, as she was teaching at Fayetteville. And then uh, we kind of recruited her, and she was to become the first woman lawyer at the Rose Firm, one of the first in a major firm in Little Rock. You know, uh, there weren't many uh, women who were who were practicing back then. All right, so uh, we're moving along now, and we're seeing this story sort of come together. Yes, so he's working at the Rose Law Firm, a very successful attorney, and his first venture into politics was a spot on the Little Rock City Board. There was an opening, and um, this is from 1978. Um, First, he'll explain how it happened. I had some friends who were uh, who were on the city board, a couple of friends, and there was a vacancy, and they called me and said, you need to put your name in for being on the city board. And I said, well, I, I'm not qualified. I, don't, I was 28 at the time. And they said, well, you need to put your name in. It'll be good for your law practice. Uh, you know, and you're interested in city affairs. So I did, and then the next thing I know, uh, after going through the application process, they called me and said, come on down and be sworn in. And I said, well, that's not possible. You know, you told me there wasn't a chance. And they said, well, turns out one of the other members created a vacancy, and you and Lottie Shackelford are both what have been appointed, and come on down and be sworn in. And so that's how I started. So he's uh, on the board of directors, the city board of directors at Little Rock, and then the mayor's job comes open. Right. The the mayor abruptly uh, resigned. And uh, at the time, the mayor's position was pretty much ceremonial. Right. It was uh, a city manager manager form of government. And so uh, the board itself would vote on the mayor. So here is uh, a 1979 interview with Hubble right before the vote for mayor. I don't know, really. Uh, there's been a lot of speculation about who's going to be mayor, and there's, certainly there's been a lot of discussion. I've read in the paper and talked to other board members, but until the vote's actually had, I don't think anybody knows for sure. Would you welcome the job? I'm not sure I'd welcome it. I, I, I do know that I'm in the running and that I would take it if, if nominated and elected by the board. I, I hope whoever is is elected by the board tonight can then focus the attention of the media and the rest of the city toward the real problems in the city and off the mayor's office. Uh, ceremonial or not, you're the mayor of, of the, the largest city. Yeah. city in the state. Yeah. yeah. And he would stay in that for a couple of years. Right, until 81, and he stayed on the board after that. Uh, You know, his term as mayor expired. He stayed on the board until 84. And it seems like with Webb Hubble, so far, it's a matter of timing. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. great timing. So he has this opening on the board, goes to the board of Little Rock, mayor position. Then uh, the Arkansas Supreme Court Chief Justice Richard Atkinson Resigned. Right. So this was another opportunity for Webb Hubble. I I was close friends with one of the other judges, 
and he knew that I had an interest in being a judge. Uh, and then uh, in the middle of his term, the chief justice resigned. And that, that caused the governor to have a vacancy to appoint. And next thing I know, he had recommended me to the governor. I served, it was only for five months. It was an interim appointment, but it was probably the best I was uh, time I ever had. You know, it was, it was very, it went from being on the city board where you'd get 50 calls a day uh, to, you know, like going to a monastery with six other people. He has been drafted in the NFL, went to law school, and must have done pretty well because then he goes to the Rose Law Firm. They don't right. just hire anybody. Then the city board of directors, then mayor. Now he chief justice of the Supreme Court. <laughs> it's a it was pretty only good resume. Months, but gosh, yeah. yeah, that's that's a nice one to list. Yeah. Uh, then let's work work our way up to 1992. Bill mm-hmm. Clinton becomes president. Well. They had been friends for years uh, sure. since Hillary had started at the Rose Firm. They, as a matter of fact, they were golfing buddies. Mm-hmm. They used to play golf all the time. But Clinton wanted to take you know, his, some of his, his friends circle. and colleagues that he knew and trusted to go to Washington with him. So uh, Webb Hubble was one of them. You know, all of a sudden— uh, you know, your, your best friend has become uh, president of the United States, and he's asking you to go to Washington with him. Uh, and in my case, we didn't even know what I was going to do. All right. So he, and, and this makes sense considering his, his early career, he's in the Justice Department. That's right. Um, and he was the number three man. He was associate uh, Attorney General under Janet Reno, mm-hmm. and a lot was going on. Uh, you know, the Clinton administration was under a lot of fire those you know those first few months, mm-hmm. the first year, uh, especially from the Republicans and from the media. They, they right. were uh, a lot of scrutiny. Um, you know, the Justice Department had dealt with um, Waco. Branch oh, Davidian. Right, right. Uh, and as a matter of fact, the first bombing of the World Trade Center. In the parking garage. The parking deck yeah. below. Uh, there was a van loaded with explosives. And so they had a lot going on, a lot of criticism. Um, and one of his associates, Vince Foster, mm-hmm. from the Rose Law Firm, uh, was not adjusting apparently well to Washington life, all the criticism, all the scrutiny. We're really getting to the dawn of the 24-hour news cycle. That's true. You know, just hammer, hammer, hammer. And he felt dogged um, and uh, was dealing with depression apparently and committed suicide. Right. Um, That caused incredible amount of rumors and speculation conspiracy theorists, Mm -hmm. but the Republicans wanted uh, an investigation. Uh, There was an independent counsel called in, and this investigation broadened uh, incredibly. It went from um, the suicide of Vince Foster into the Whitewater, right? It was what, just what we know as the Whitewater investigation, which was a land development in Madison County. 
that they were investigating because of loans and loan right. fraud and that sort of thing. But all kinds of people were sucked into this because it did broaden so much. It even went beyond uh, Whitewater and Webb Hubble was included in it. This is what he had to say to me last week about that. They certainly broadened the investigation way beyond, you know, a, a, a real estate development on the White River, you know. Uh, and uh, certainly a lot of people got caught up in, in that, you know. Well, including, including Jim Guy Tucker. Jim Guy Tucker, it was total tragedy. You know, and and many others. You know, there was at one time, <clears throat> somebody told me there was over 100 people who had legal fees of over $100,000 out of that investigation. That's the voice of Webb Hubble. He is the subject of this week's Pryor Center profile. I am with uh, Randy Dixon from the Pryor Center. So where do we go down? Well, um you know, I was talking about the the expanded investigation by the independent counsel. Uh, it included Webb Hubble and, as you heard, uh, Jim Guy Tucker. But, uh, you know, him being a major tar- target, they wanted to investigate, uh, in addition to other things, his, his billable hours at the Rose Law Firm. And they turned over uh, what ended up being evidence of him overcharging clients, overcharging the firm, and um, using that money uh, for personal reasons. And so he ended up uh, pleading guilty to tax fraud. Mm -hmm. And he served, he was sentenced to 21 months, but he served 19 or 18 months uh, in prison, in federal prison. And uh, in his book, Friends in High Places, he describes it in detail, and it it was no country club. Right, that's what we always hear these these white yeah, collar. Yeah, well, it, and this yeah. was that, but it what? Yeah, yeah, it was it was no picnic. Right. Uh, so anyway, the original uh, independent counsel was Robert Fisk. Mm-hmm. During this time, uh, I guess his term expired. Or he left, and a man named Kenneth Starr came in, and he was very aggressive uh, in his tactics and in his investigation. And he was convinced that Hubble was hiding secrets. Now, this is while Hubble's in prison, right? Um, and he continues this investigation, and um, so Starr continues to pursue. Uh, investigating Hubble. So in April of 1998, more indictments uh, were served. And here's Independent Counsel Representative uh, Charles Backley, and he's outside the courthouse the day they filed. Charging conspiracy to violate the internal revenue laws, tax evasion, impairing and impeding the due administration of the IRS, and mail fraud. The tax and mail fraud violations alleged in the indictment charge at the Hubbles owed taxes, interests, and penalties to the IRS, the state of Arkansas, and the District of Columbia in excess of $894,000. The indictment alleges that in or about April of 1994, Webster Hubble 
began a consulting business and received hundreds of thousands of dollars in fees. It, the indictment further alleges that he performed little or no work for some of these payments. Those charges stem from consulting work that Hubble did in Washington after his conviction. So not only did they indict Hubble, right. but they indicted his wife mm. and an attorney and an accountant who were friends, and they helped him prepare uh, his taxes. So uh, here's Hubble's attorney, uh, John Neal's, outside the courthouse that same day. This is another bad day for the office of the independent counsel. Webb Hubble, for the last 18 months, has been investigated by that office for many different things, looking for some way to prosecute him again. At the end of it all, they have reached out very probably beyond the limits of their jurisdiction and brought a very rare type of tax charge against him. Also that day, didn't Webb Hubble and his wife talk to the press? Yes, they came outside their home. And, well, when you listen to this, you can tell the, the frustration and the emotion in his voice. Obviously, it's apparent to me that they think by indicting my wife and my friends that I will lie about the president and the first lady. I will not do so. And my wife would not want me to do so. Yeah, on top of all this, Starr obtained a third indictment against Hubble. The other one was dismissed, mm -hmm. uh, the second set of indictments. But this time, this was for allegedly giving false testimony to the federal banking regulators and the House Banking Committee. Now, this was years before. This was like 10 years before. So on Starr's last day as prosecutor, oh, which that's was right. June 30th. I it was his last day. Yeah, yeah. 1999, uh, Hubble finally pleaded guilty to a charge of failing to disclose a potential conflict of interest. And that was 10 years mm. before that. Um, mm. Now, he was sentenced to one-year probation, so he, he did not go back to prison, but it was with the agreement that the independent counsel would drop any charges against his wife and his two friends that they indicted, and they would never bring charges uh, against Hubble again. Wow. And, um, well, here's uh, Hubble that day, and you can tell the relief in his voice. After five years, it's over. The Office of Independent Counsel has finally agreed to leave me, my family, and my friends alone. Well, now there's yet another life for Webb Hubble. Twelve years ago, I had a rare form of hepatitis and had to have a liver transplant, which again caused me to, to, to shift my life. And so my wife and I decided to move to closer to our kids. And my kids said, what are you going to do next, Dad? You know, and I said, well, I think I'll write the great American novel. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say they're great American novels, but they're a lot of fun to write. And so I guess wrapping things up, it was it was a great conversation with him. Uh, he was very nice and, you know, to allow the time. But uh, I asked him a few more questions 
And and I had to ask her about his relationship with the Clintons and if he's still in, in touch with them even. Uh, I have stayed in touch with Bill. And uh, last time he was here touting his book, I got to, we spent some time together. Mm-hmm. Do you ever regret, I mean, being as close to them or getting involved in, in all of this? Never, never regret being close to them. You know, they're wonderful friends and were. Uh, you know, you always have regrets in life, but you just move on, you know, and move on. Mm-hmm. You wish you'd have played for the Bears? <laughs> uh, you know, if I'd played for the Bears, I'd probably be punch drunk and running a bar in Chicago right now. And after going to D.C., that sounds pretty good. Really interesting stuff. Thank you, Thank Andy. you. It's great to be here. It's great to have you here. Uh, We'll do it again next Monday. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. The Center for Arkansas Farms and Food is dedicated to teaching the next generation of farmers and increasing the number of thriving farms in Arkansas. Farm School is an 11-month program combining hands-on specialty crop farming with classes in production, business, and legal issues. The 2023 application deadline is September 30th. Information and application at learntofarm.org. This is a Monday edition of Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellums. Thanks for being with us in just a couple of minutes. Ozarks at Large producer, co-host, and um, reporter Matthew Moore will be with me to kind of highlight tomorrow night's live podcast reporting of one of our podcasts, natural election. I say one of our podcasts because we have made a serious commitment to covering as much of this community as we can through not just Ozarks at Large, not just the morning newscasts, not just through our music and entertainment programs, but now through podcasts like Natural Election that goes into the nuts and bolts of how elections and democracy work. Undisciplined that shows that African and African-American studies connects to every part of our life. Or The R Word, which was a limited-run podcast that looked at the concept of reparations. Those are just three of several. We're doing this because we have a deep commitment to you and our community and to expanding how we think about the issues that affect our community. And we can only do this and continue to do this and continue to grow. We have plans with your support. If you've never contributed to KUAF and you're listening right now and you are able, let me really encourage you because so many people are are, are picking up the slack for you, really, and making sure they contribute. If you haven't yet and you're able, you can go to support KUAF right now and make a contribution. You pick the amount. If you'd like to give a little bit every month and watch that contribution over the course of a year grow, you can do that and become a sustaining member of KUAF. Maybe it's $10 a month. Maybe it's $20 a month. You best know what you can afford. And when you do that, that helps us. We can plan better for the future. And you can give just a little bit right now. But believe me, by the end of the year, it's a significant gift. And if we receive 10 new sustainers between now and the end of our fundraising day, It will meet a challenge from two of our great friends, Lynn and Joel Carver, who have made a challenge. Let's hit, between noon and the end of the fundraising day, 10 new sustainers. Perhaps you've given before, but you haven't become a sustainer. We get 10 new sustainers. 
Lynn and Joel will add $100 to our fundraising total, but also provide a $300 gift card to Canopy NWA for their welcoming kits for refugees who are relocating to Northwest Arkansas and our entire listening area. You can make that switch to sustaining member at supportkuaf.com. And just one more gentle nudge, our great friends John and Kay Duvall of Fayetteville have put up $150 in challenges Right now, during this hour of Ozarks at Large, please make a contribution and help us meet that challenge of $150. Support KUAF.com and thank you. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellens. With me in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News studio is Ozarks at Large producer and reporter and host, Matthew Moore. Welcome, Matthew. Hi, Kyle. Uh, This is the first day of our on-air fundraiser. That's right. And I think it's a – what we're going to talk about is an apt way to show how Ozarks at Large and KUF have grown over the last 30-plus years. We're not just a broadcast anymore. We're also podcasts, and we're also out in the public. And what we're going to talk about here covers all three of those. Yeah, it's a great culmination of all of that and really shows how we have taken opportunities to move outside of the linear radio space and move into uh, reporting in a way that we don't always get the opportunity to do at noon on 91.3. And so part of what that work has been has been Natural Election, the podcast that uh, we have. It's it's a podcast dedicated to all things connected to election. Right. Yes. I, I find myself describing it as a politics podcast, but it's not really a politics podcast. It's well put, yeah. It's it's more of a, a an election education podcast, a civic engagement podcast. We're not really telling you who to vote for or you know, where to fall on a policy, we just want you to know what you ought to know before you fill out that ballot, uh, whether it's before the election or on election day. Stories and excerpts from the podcast can be heard on Ozarks at Large. There is the full podcast available wherever you get podcasts. But now we're going beyond that and we're going out into the community. That's right. So uh, on tomorrow, Tuesday, uh, the 27th at 6 p.m., we are going to be having a live podcast recording at the Pryor Center in downtown Fayetteville. Um, and it's really an opportunity for us to engage with our community to really kind of get boots on the ground and really um, go into our listening audience and show them what we do and how we do it. And the subject for tomorrow night's uh, panel discussion is one of the most, if not the most, fundamental question connected with voting in elections. Does my vote matter? And, you know, sometimes we can think of that as a rhetorical question. You can't answer rhetorical questions in a live podcast recording, Kyle. You have to actually answer them. And so that's what we're really excited to do. I think a lot of times when we think of voting, we think of voting for president or, you know, in this midterm, we think of voting for governor. Those are important things to vote for. But... You know, if you vote a certain way, you may think, well, you know, my vote is just a drop in the ocean and it doesn't really impact what's going on. But that's really kind of what we're trying to dispel with this panel is to talk about how important each and every vote matters, especially on the local level. If 
you were to try to get two other people on a panel that I think by the end of the night could tell you why your vote mattered, I couldn't think of a better combo than what you've put together. Right, yeah, we've been really lucky to get Janine Perry. She's an associate professor at the University of Arkansas who you know teaches on political science. She is the director of the Arkansas Poll. I mean, she is you know knee-deep in polling and politics and understanding what folks in Arkansas really want on their ballots, what what inspires them to vote. Um, and then we also have Jennifer Price, who's the executive director of the Washington County Elections Commission. She is the one who makes the wheels turn, and she's the one who makes sure that elections are safe, they're secure, uh, that they count, and that you know we can continue to keep having elections year after year. What will you and the panelists discuss? So... You know, a a big thing that we have spent time talking about in the primaries was voter turnout. What what does turnout look like? We had a a much higher turnout, you know, in this midterm compared to previous midterms, but it's still really low. What can we do to engage more voters, to bring more people to the polling booth, to figure out, you know, what do we need to do to make sure that everyone who's eligible to vote can do so. Um, You know, a big concern for folks has been election security. You know, we've heard a lot of folks who are worried that, you know, literally their vote doesn't count, Mm -hmm. that it's been stolen or it's been taken away from them. So we really want to hammer in the fact that your vote does matter and it does count. Um, And then we also want to talk about the ramifications of Voting locally, you know, the top of the ticket where you see, you know, in this election, you'll see the governor, lieutenant governor, and attorney general, those sorts of things. senator, yeah. Right, those things matter, but what has a much greater impact on your day-to-day life is local elections, voting for your county judge, voting for your justice of the peace, your city council member. Like, knowing the difference between what a city council person does and what a justice of the peace does, I'm not sure I fully know that yet. So, you know, being able to understand and fully grasp the impact you can have just by going to the polls. All right. So this takes place at the Pryor Center, uh, which is on the square Mm -hmm. in downtown Fayetteville. It's free. Yes. And if you are, you know, this is not just a Washington County, Benton County kind of conversation. Right. This is something that, you know, we call it natural election for a reason. It's about the whole state of Arkansas. So, you know, if you can't come to Fayetteville on Tuesday, we have a Zoom link. You're more than welcome to Zoom into that. Uh, we'll have a Q&A after the panel discussion. So if you're on Zoom and you have a question for a panelist, you can ask your question there too. And so we'll have a link to that with all the details at KUAF.com slash vote. All right. Will, will there be a chance for us to hear it later? Yes, absolutely. So we'll record the conversation Tuesday night. Um, you know, knock on wood, we'll have it in the podcast feed by the next day, Wednesday. Oh, well, so. how do you do? All right. Matthew Moore, thank you so much for your time. See you tomorrow night, 6 o'clock, Prior Center on the Fayetteville Square. I'm Joy McGowan. I'm Denisha Simpson. And, and we are Resilient, Resilient Black, Black Women. On the next Resilient Black Women... Joy and Denisha answer questions about therapy, how to start, how to deal with health insurance, how to change therapists, and how do you know when you're done? Okay, guys, so we always want to give our listeners what they would like to hear. And so I heard from a few people that they wanted to hear us talk about how do we even get started with therapy? What's that process? It's kind of like the home buying process. Um, They said, like, where do I even go? Where do I start? 
answers to questions you may have about starting therapy on the next Resilient Black Women, available now at KUAF.com and anywhere you get your podcasts. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and P. Ridge. 91.3 KUAF, your public radio station. Timothy Dennis produced today's show inside the Harold and Blanchcock News Studio. Thank you so much, Matthew Moore, for coming by and uh, giving us some highlights of what we can expect at tomorrow night's live podcast taping from 6 to 7.15 at the uh, Prior Center that's taking place on the square in the Prior Center. Absolutely no charge. And uh, we hope to see you there. I'm Kyle Kellums. Let me remind you that we have a couple of challenges on this first day of the on-air portion of this fundraising month at KUAF. One is from John and Kay Duvall, who put up $150 for this hour of uh, Ozarks at large. If we can raise $150 during this hour, they'll match that. That's worth $300 to KUAF. Speaking of $300, that's the amount of a gift card that uh, will be donated to Canopy NWA for a welcoming kit. That welcoming kit can include furniture, kitchen items, bedding kits, toiletries, and more for refugee families who are relocating here. How this works Longtime great friends of KUAF, Lynn and Joel Carver, are trying to encourage you to support your public radio station and provide gift cards for the welcoming kits. Every afternoon during this on-air fundraiser, today through Friday, the challenge from Lynn and Joel is that they will put up a, their own money, and we're trying to get 10 people to become sustainers of KUAF. Even if you've contributed before, maybe semi-regularly, or you wait for the fundraiser, but you want to make it an every-month thing— in the amount of your choosing, and become a new sustainer of KUAF, if we get you and nine other new sustainers during the course of an afternoon, that kicks in the $100 to KUAF, but also from Lynn and Joel, a $300 gift card to Canopy NWA. And if you'd like to see a full list of needed items for welcoming kits, canopynwa.org. To make a contribution to KUAF in any manner, in any way, support KUAF.com. You can also mail us a contribution. Our mailing address, 9 South School, Fayetteville, Arkansas, 72701. Thanks so much for your report. Your support will be back tomorrow from the Carver Center for Public Radio. I'm Kyle Kellums.